If you will, please stand with me at the reading of God's Word. Luke 17, verses 1 through 6 will be our primary text this morning. This is the Word of our risen Lord Christ to this body of believers this morning. Luke 17, verse 1, And Jesus said to His disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith, like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. You may be seated. The primary verses uh, for our sermon today are verses 3 and 4 of Luke 17. It is clearly a passage where the Lord Jesus is teaching about forgiveness and what I want you to primarily see this morning is when he talks about forgiveness, he says it is transactional. That forgiveness in the outworkings of real relationships is a transaction. That when forgiveness is needed because sin is committed, It is a transaction. That is to say, there is an exchange of duties. There is an exchange of responsibilities. And they are on both sides of the offense. There are responsibilities that the offender has. The person who commits the sin against someone else. And there are also responsibilities before God that the offended person has. It's a transaction. There are duties and responsibilities that must be exchanged by both parties. The great ambition of every Christian is to grow in both confession and forgiveness. That's the sermons in a sentence. That's the same sentence I said last week. That's the main idea of what we're getting at. And I I said last week, you can waste your ambition. Your life's pursuit may be accepted by the world, but we want it to be acceptable to God. We want our whole life to be aimed in a direction that matters beyond this life and the great ambition, therefore, of every Christian is to grow in both confession 
and forgiveness. And that's what this whole sermon is about. How do we go about doing that? And I have been greatly influenced over the last year of this training that I've received. And if you want to pursue this topic more, Ken Sandy's book, The Peacemaker, would be a great book to get. But I've been especially impacted by my mentor in counseling, Dan Kirk. Uh, he preached a sermon. I've given this sermon to some of you, and you've listened to it. He preached a sermon on these principles, um, and, and, and I thought they were so good that I wanted to take a crack at it myself. And I thought it was so good that I wanted to put before you these life-shaping truths. We are called, if we are Christians, we are called to be peacemakers. But listen, many who claim Christ don't know how to make peace. Don't know how. They don't know how to make peace when they've wronged someone else or when they've been wronged. By someone else. All of us can settle if we don't have God's grace, God's word changing us, leading us. We can all settle into patterns of peace breaking or peace faking. But we're called to real peace and to make it with those we're separated by from sin. And when we're engaging in the act of transactional forgiveness, I'm going to give you seven responsibilities. Seven things to do. Five of which for the offender, the person who committed the sin. Two for the offended, the person who was sinned against. And listen, I, I mean, I praying that God will use this because this these truths can greatly shape your marriage. These truths, whatever wherever you've been on peacemaking before, from this moment on, God has, we have hope in the Gospel that God will use this to greatly help our relationships with our siblings, with our parents, with our friends, with fellow church members. I'm laying out before you an equipping to train your children to understand the Gospel and to place their faith in the Savior as they deal with sin and sinners in their life. Seven things. Number one, the offender, the person who committed the sin in confessing sin must, first of all, pinpoint the sin. Must pinpoint the precise sin. Christians do not apologize. Christians confess. An apology is literally a defense. It is an explanation for why it was reasonable or even right to have done something. That's what apology means. Let me encourage you just to get rid of that language. It doesn't have any place in the transaction. Let me encourage you 
to start using the phrase, may I confess to you. The word confession means agree, not defend or explain. It means agree. And when we confess, we're not necessarily, this is important, we're not necessarily agreeing with the person who we've hurt and their perspective. That's not what we're called to. We're not necessarily called to, to, to admit to the charges that anyone charges us with. That's not who we're agreeing with. We are Christians who agree with God. And the truth is, whenever we've committed sin against someone, he is likely disagreeing with the, with our version of events and the reasoning we had to do that thing. But he's also disagreeing with maybe the person we've hurt at points. This is the most and first important step. Pinpoint the sin. What I mean is, you need to stop thinking about and analyzing just the situation. You need to go to God's Word and ask Him to interpret what happened. You need to pinpoint the sin that He lays out. We are not ready to reconcile until we've let God shape our understanding of what has happened. That is going to require prayer. And it also requires finding language in God's Word, in the Bible, for what we actually did. So, Christian confession is not, sorry you misunderstood me, Sorry you took me this way. That's not confession. Confession is coming to someone and say, God has taught me. I was just looking at things my way. I was just acting. And he has now analyzed my actions and my thoughts and my motives. And I confess I am agreeing with him, I was wrong. And you name the sin biblically. What I mean is you use God's words when you confess. You say to someone, I spoke to you in sinful anger. That's a God word. I was lazy. That's a God word. I gossiped against you. I'm using God's word. I've thought through this. He's spoken. I'm saying his words. One of, I mean, there's lots of privileges of being a pastor and preacher. And sometimes it ain't always easy. So when I'm preparing for preaching a sermon like this, like yesterday, one of my children came up to me and said, may I confess? Because that's the language we use in our house. May I confess? And I say, and I already knew <laughs> some sense that I've, I, I haven't, quite disciplined him for all the right reasons. I was wrong in this situation. And so I said, what do you want to confess for? And he said, I was loud. Now you won't find loud in God's words as a sin. But it felt like a sin against me in the moment. And so I had to say, that's not a sin. That's not really the issue. I did tell you not to be loud and you disobeyed me. That's, that's sinful. But I want to, I want you to hear this point. Confession is not needed 
just because someone transgresses your laws. You need to understand and distinguish your private and personal irritations and understand Moses ain't never walked around with tablets with those things written on it. And no one needs to be confessing for that. Let me give you three questions to equip you to work through this very important step. Number one, think. What should I have done? Go to God's word. Think. What did they need? What did God want? What should I have done? That's number one. Number two, then analyze. What did I do instead of that? What did God say I should do? What did I do instead? And then number three, how, answer this question in God's word, how was that sinful? Why was that sinful? Why was it not like God when I did this? You need to explain this to the the person you sinned against. You should consider and then communicate what exactly was sinful. What exactly was wrong about it. You need to pinpoint. So you say, when I did this, I distorted an accurate representation of God and I made in His image and I shouldn't have done it. He wouldn't do this and I shouldn't have done it. Or you say, God is wise in calling me to this other thing. It would have been better for you if I had done this and I realize that now. Here's a pro tip. Here's a pro tip from someone who sins a lot and therefore has many opportunities to confess sin. All sins destroy relationships. All sins destroy relationships. Not all sins equally destroy relationships. So if you come to pinpoint several sins, you start with the most major one. Pro tip, don't make them wait. If, if something has most hurt your relationship, don't start with the word stubborn. Start with the word lie. Go with the higher sin. Don't make them sit there and have a crisis of faith waiting for you to come to it. Do they really understand what they did? Number two, the offender, the person who's confessing sin, needs to pinpoint the sin. Secondly, they need to picture the experience. Picture their experience, the experience of the one who they hurt. Good peacemakers do this. We exercise our imagination. We picture out of love for that person how we hurt them and what it made them feel like. This is the part of agreeing with God. It's, it's, if we agree with God, then we're agreeing with God that the sinfulness of our action brings harm. And we should have pictured how that harmed them. So I want to encourage you to use a sanctified imagination with God's help to imagine or picture and then express with compassion how exactly we expect our attitudes or our actions in that, in that moment hurt that person. So it's something like this. When I spoke harshly to you, I'm sure I did not, I made it harder for you to trust my leadership. I'm understanding what you're experiencing. I'm thought through. Or, or when I don't forgive you and keep punishing you for, for how you've sinned against me, when I don't really forgive you, that may have tempted you to worry that God is not going to forgive you. I've made your faith harder when I continually do this to you. 
Or when, when I looked at you like that, it must have made you feel really unimportant. When I looked at you like that, it must have made you feel unloved and maybe even afraid. Picture their experience. Number three, again, for the one who's confessing the sin, petition for clarification. Pinpoint the sin, picture their experience, then petition for clarification. I got all the P's, guys. I got seven P's for for you. Let me explain them. Petition for clarification. I said this last week. If you are someone who wants Jesus to look good, then you need to forsake your desire to look good yourself. Either you can look good or he can look good, but not both. So while you're agreeing with God about how wrong you were before God's eyes to that person, you should be really open to the idea that even though you've thought of it, even though you've pinpointed, even though you've pictured, you may not be seeing this perfectly. And so you need to ask them, can you clarify? I've just expressed these things to you. Is this accurate? Let me let me give you three questions. So you you go to someone and you say, look, before I ask you to forgive me, I'm not ready to ask you because I haven't asked you this other thing. I want to be sure that I've understood your experience of the harm that I've caused you. So three questions. Number one, is my understanding of your thoughts or feelings accurate? I've just explained. I've done the work. I'm not just going to make you do the work. I've explained it. This is the way I've. I've thought about how I hurt you. Is it accurate? Number two, is there anything I haven't confessed? Is there a sin I've just missed? And number three, is there anything else you'd like to say or ask? Let me tell you how I came to number three. Is there anything else you'd like to say or ask? Let me tell you how I came to that. It's through practicing this over and over. And, and for me, it's, it's every single day. I try to back off it for you, but for me, it's every single day I'm confessing sin or forgiving sin. Every single day I'm walking through this. And I notice this pattern where someone who I love has sinned against me and they're confessing sin and they go through all the process, but they didn't go through this step. And what I, what I noticed is after they asked for forgiveness and I promised to forgive them, we then weren't done with it because I had more to say or more to ask. And what, so forgiveness is supposed to bring reconciliation and restoration and love and, and there's nothing more between us. I really forgive you. And what would end up happening is then it didn't feel like this reunion of the father to the wayward son. It didn't feel like that at all because I had more discipline. If discipline or teaching follows forgiveness, then God's view of restoration is not really being displayed. So do this first. Say all that you want to say before you're you're asked for forgiveness and then you forgive. You want there to be a real rejoicing and restoring of the relationship, not harping on it more. Number four, and here we get to the offended person, right? First three are for the one who committed the sin. The fourth one is the first one for the one who was hurt. 
and you should prove your eagerness. You should prove your eagerness. A couple of weeks ago, we, we went to Denver so I could officiate a wedding for family. And not, let me tell you, I was promised mountains. I was promised mountains, Rocky Mountains. So part of my excitement about going was walks, prayer walks with the mountains and the majesty of God's creation in my view. Well, there's fires going on in Colorado. And there's a lot of smoke that you can't, as Smoky Mountains more like. It's not Rocky Mountains anymore. Right now you can't even see the mountains. And so I was promised mountains and I, I couldn't see them because smoke was hiding my eyes from majesty, from reality. It's a transaction. When someone is hurt, there is a smoke that screens the truth. The guilt of the person who hurt you can so hide from your eyes that God actually expects something of you. And if you notice, if you just reread Luke 17, Jesus is talking to the one who was hurt and laying on the responsibilities of the one to the one who is hurt. Each party in the transaction has responsibilities that are spiritually meaningful. The hurt party's response to God, a response to this, matters to God. Because God says, if I'm going to send you fiery trials that will test whether you genuinely trust me or not. In other words, pain, often at the hands of other people who should not have failed us, who should have loved us. Pain is sent by God to test whether we really believe Him. Pain in our life provokes us not to believe. We're tempted in our flesh not to trust Him, not to obey Him, to sin against Him. And God is calling the one who has been offended and hurt to have faith in Him and to be faithful. Do not make an immunity agreement with your hurt. Do not make an immunity agreement with your hurt. Oh, you! I hope you hear me. So many, everyone is at least tempted to think when we've been hurt, and maybe we genuinely have, the impulse is to think we are immune to being guilty. We can do whatever we want until they make this right. Hurt people hurt people. And you better believe that the offended person almost always, apart from God's grace, always will become the offender and have something to confess for. You are not immune. It matters spiritually. It tells something about us spiritually, what we do when we're hurt. So when you answer that petition for clarification, you better be proving your eagerness. I'm ready to forgive. I'm going to answer you in a truthful way, but also in a loving and humble way. And Jesus says in verse 3, 
Look, if someone sins against you, you rebuke them. So it may be that they've pinpointed the sin, they pictured your experience, and they're still off. You may need to do some work in this step. And you may need to draw their attention to their guilt. You should do that. But you should only confront in the service of them. You want to help them. We want to do good to the one who hurts us. That's what separates us from everyone else in the world. We do not and we should not and we must not think that at this stage before they ask for forgiveness, we it is our role to make them feel our pain and to seek retribution. Listen, how you handle your hurt reveals whether you really believe in God. People of faith are people who wait. We are waiting. And we have to get comfortable with the waiting because we're believing. Listen, are you prepared to hear their confession? You will not be if you are harping on their fault. If you're waiting like that, and that's what you're rattling around, their fault. If you are convinced, they're never going to do right. They'll never do right. They do this over and over again, over and over again. Jesus says, if they did it to you seven times that same day, they came to you at nine in the morning and said, I'm so sorry I lied to you. I forgive you. 10.30? I did it again. I said I'd never do it again. I did it again. I forgive you. Seven times the same day. And seven's the perfect number. It means infinite amount of times. You just keep, you've got to be ready. Are you ready to forgive? How you wait when you're hurt says so much about you spiritually. It is a better indicator of where you are with the Lord than than most uh, every other thing when things are going well. How you wait. So when you get hurt, you better start praying for the one who offended you because you want God's grace more than you want their punishment. You better start meditating on how God has forgiven you of so much more. And you better start believing God can soften them. God can soften them. He does that sort of thing. So the posture in that moment is not folded arms and sulky eyes and dagger eyes. The posture in that moment is the running open arms celebrating father we heard about in Luke 15 who wouldn't even let his son finish his confession. He laid out his confession and the father wouldn't even let him finish. Forgiveness precedes the changed life. You can look in Matthew 18. Forgiveness is what changes life. So you don't have to see their changes before you forgive them. The great ambition of every Christian is to grow in both confession and forgiveness. Step five. Now we're back to the offender, the one who committed sin. They should now pledge their Repentance, pledge, promise. Now, this is not something at this point that you start thinking of. This is something you do before you petition for clarity. This is something you have thought through. I've already thought through what I need to do to turn away from this sin. And But now I've asked them the question. They've helped me to see it even more clearly. And I'm going to adjust my response. But this is part of it. You have to pledge your repentance and if you're going to do this in a, in a biblical way, you should share with that person your plan. This is what I'm going to do to make the wrong right. 
This is my strategy. I've thought it through. You don't have to think it through for me. You don't have to say it. I've thought it through. This is my strategy to avoid committing this sin ever again against you. You talk about how you're going to accept the consequences of this sin and how it's damaged the relationship. You talk about what you're going to do to make it right. And you're going to be specific. Pledging your repentance prayerfully, asking God to help you. But pledging that you're going to change. That's repentance. You're going to turn away from the actions that hurt. It could be as simple as this. Look, I recognize that when I got caught, I, what, I, what I did immediately is I wanted to hide and lie. So what I'm committed to doing from here on out is now I know what I'm tempted to do when I'm caught. And so I'm going to regularly commit myself now to ask God to help me to recognize that temptation and to turn from it. Or it's, it's saying, my beloved daughter, I want to guard myself and I want to guard you from ever yelling at you when I discipline you. And so I've got a plan from now on. Whenever I need to discipline you, we're from now on, we're just, and I'm going to lead out in this. We're going to take five minutes, at least five minutes. And I'm going to go and be alone with the Lord. And I'm going to seek Him in prayer and seek Him in the Word so that I don't sin against you just because you sinned against me. I don't want to hurt you and dishonor the Lord. Or, it looks like this. You say, look, I broke your trust. And I understand that it's going to take you a while to trust me again. And I want you to know I'm committed to not being impatient with how long that takes. You pledge your repentance. Number six, and this is the last one for the one who's confessing sin. After you've pledged your repentance and done all the rest, you plead for forgiveness. You plead for forgiveness. Saying sorry is not enough for Christians. It's not enough. Christians are in the business of God the Father who is in the business of restoring broken relationships. We want the relationship that is broken to be restored. We don't just say, sorry, and I'm off. We plead for forgiveness. Christian confession always ends in a question. Christian Confession always ends in a question. Because Christians are different from non-Christians. I didn't just confess to unload my conscience. Finally, I don't have to feel guilty about this anymore. That's not us. We don't just want to feel better. We don't just want to say, I've done my part, now to hell with you. We know that person needs to be forgiving if they're forgiven or else they'll be sent to hell. That's what Jesus says in another passage in Matthew 18. If you who are forgiven do not forgive, God will lock you away for, in hell and you'll pay for it forever. In other words, you're not really forgiven. So you want to invite you, you say, I want our relationship back. Will you forgive me, please? 
Let's be one again. And I want to give you the opportunity to trust the Lord and, and, and to forgive because that's what's good for you. We ask with sorrow. That's what sorry really should mean is full of sorrow. But we're also desperate to be restored. We're pleading. The great ambition of every Christian is to grow in both confession and repentance. The rest of our time I'm going to spend on number seven. That is the majority of what Jesus is focused on in passages like these. And ironically, the greatest burden is placed on the one who was hurt. The one who's being confessed to must pardon from the heart. Look in verse 3, where Jesus says, and the translators have put an exclamation point after this, emphatically, he's turned to his disciples, and he says, when someone hurts you, pay attention to yourselves. Not their sin. You pay attention. You've got a, you've got a very important moment right now. And listen, one way that the transaction often falls short of what God wants in this, in this, uh, giving and taking is that people get in the habit, and don't do this, they get in the habit of saying, I forgive you to someone who's never asked for it. Now, you need to be ready way before they ask to forgive. And you may have forgiven them in their heart, but you don't say to them, I forgive you before they've asked for it. Because you're robbing them of the, the thing that God wants from them, which is to confess and agree with Him and, and to express a desire for reconciliation. So you have to wait for it. But once they ask, there's only one answer. Jesus says in verse 4, you must forgive them. You're not counting how many times is this. You must forgive them, even if they've done it seven times that very day, which is, again, an infinite amount of times in the way that God counts. Forgiveness is a promise of four things. Understand what you're saying when you say, I forgive you. You're saying what God says when God says, I forgive you. And it means four things. Number one, to not remember. That is to say, it's not like you literally get amnesia. But God says He separates it from the east, as far as the east is from the west. He's not dwelling on it. It's far from His mind. I'm, I'm promising you I will not, I will actively choose not to dwell on this and I will not prosecute you or punish you. Number two, I will not bring up this event again or use it against you. Now li- listen, this, we're to help one another turn from sin and even turn from sinning against us. And so, there are times where you have, where it's wise to bring up the incident, but you don't use it against them, you use it for them. You're not hanging it over them and acting unforgiving. But you want to help them to turn from something that's destructive to them. And so you might, maybe it's to, to guard yourself, you may come up with a code word. And you just agree, 
I'm going to say this code word just to, because I don't want to punish you for this, but I want to encourage and guard you to not be tempted in this way. So I might say this word, but, and I need your help to not punish you with it, but, because then I'll have to confess to you. Number three, I will not talk to anyone else about this. Ah, I forgive you. I'm not talking to anyone about this. This is between you and me, and it's gone. Number four, I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. And you're called to forgive. Forgiveness is a declaration. You see, he says, you must say, I repent or I forgive you. It's a declaration. It's something you say. It's not something you feel. Don't mistake, do I feel right? You need to obey God. Jesus has told you to do this. Regardless of how you feel, you need to do it, and it needs to come from your heart. Now notice, all of this is about faith. Do you see that in verse 5? They hear Jesus call them to do something, and what do they say? (laughs) Uncle, you got to increase our faith. I don't got faith to do all that. And Jesus says, you don't need more faith. You need the smallest amount of faith. Because this is not about your ability. Faith is about who you believe in. Faith is about what you're convinced I want you to do. And I'm telling you to do it. You have a tiny amount of faith, which means you just believe I want you to do it. You do it. This is not about you waiting until you have something more. That's the problem. The disciples understand this is humanly impossible. You've got to help me. And he says, you've got to just believe. You've got to believe in me. Oh, beloved. Don't you know, God is absolutely holy and pure. And when one sin occurred, one bite of a piece of fruit, The whole world died. And they were kicked out of God's presence for good. You got to understand, whenever God called some people to Himself, He said, look, if we're going to do this thing, you're going to have to shed blood every single year. You're going to have to give thousands and thousands of lives of pure animals, or I'm not living with you. You got to give your best. You got to kill them. And then I'll live with you. We'll, We'll renew our lease for one more year. But the fact that it was thousands and thousands and thousands, the fact that those sin offerings were offered by a sinful priest himself, it was just this reminder. He's not satisfied. He's still angry. We've got to keep on doing it. That is, until this holy God, in order to forgive abundantly wicked Rebels put flesh on his own son and sent his son to be rejected by this world. And his son joyfully went to a cross, suffered and died, being the perfect priest who walked into the presence of God with his own perfect blood to cover the sins of everyone who would trust in him. And God says, I accept it 
and it will perfect the consciences of all. So he can give this sacrifice once for all time. Beloved, it was his own son. Who did he forgive? You heard it. The picture of us is the son who says, I can't wait for you to die, dad. You got to give me your inheritance right now. I'm not waiting for you to die. I want you dead. I'm tired of waiting. Give me my money. And he squanders all the gift of the gracious father in reckless living. And he finds himself exactly where he deserves with pigs, hungry, rejected, and nobody would help him. He says, I'll just be a slave to my father. It's better than this. I'll at least have bread. And he comes up with this confession. And he, and he goes to his father and his father goes to him, arms wide and says, I forgive you. Kill the fat cat. That's the picture. But it's the son who was slaughtered in our place. You have faith that that's the only way you can be in his presence. You have faith that that's what he has done for us in place of us deserving eternal punishment in hell. If you turn from your sins and trust in Christ, that's exactly what he get, we get. And the cross of Jesus is calling us higher than we would ever reach. And at the same time, lower than we would ever stoop. The cross of Jesus Christ makes us people who we don't have a limit of transgressions committed against us. There's no amount of sin you can commit against me that I will not forgive. There's no cost to me that is too great because there was no cost to him that was too great. He paid far more. He stooped way lower in order to forgive me. And I want to be like him. When a volcano is erupting, the whole village enters into a state of emergency. You can watch it on the news. You may be watching the lava and it's moving really slowly. But everyone's freaked out. Because they know that that lava is spreading. And therefore, they're not casual. They know that the lava will destroy everything it touches and it will forever alter life as they know it if they're not urgent. And if you and I do not deal urgently with our pain and with our offense, it's going to spread, maybe slowly, but it will become a mountain of bitterness. The Bible says bitterness is maybe the most dangerous threat in all the world to a Christian. Esau wanted repentance and he sought for it with tears and he never found it because he was bitter. Listen. Bitterness. Being unforgiving. Not for, not just saying the words. I mean, forgiving like God forgives us and doing good to that person and wanting good and wanting restoration with that, that person. Bitterness. 
makes someone a spiritual invalid. Asking an embittered person to do something simple is like is as unrealistic as asking a cripple to walk. Asking a crippled person to raise their hand. If they're embittered, they will not do the simplest things that God asked them to do. It is more valuable to see faith and obedience in the area of someone's hurt and toward the person who hurt them that is more valuable to see it there and with that person than with anyone in the world. Esau may have been a great father and friend. He was bitter toward Jacob and his father. And he went to hell. The other example in Matthew 18 is a guy who loves his family. When he's told because he owes the king so much money that he's going to be sentenced to prison forever, When the king says, I'll send all your family there, he begs for mercy. He loves his family. He may be great to everyone in the world. And when he's forgiven and he goes and he chokes the person who owed him less than he owed the king, all of the servants of the king are so offended. How dare you do that? And the king said, you're going to prison forever and you're never going to pay. What is he saying? What is Jesus saying? He's saying that your heart and my heart toward our actions toward the person who hurt us and offended us is a better indicator of our faith, is a better indicator of our relationship with the Lord and whether we understand forgiveness than all the relationships with all the people who have not rocked our world. If we choke, cut off, write off, are indifferent toward those who have hurt us, we are in grave spiritual danger. Only a fool would be casual with lava. There are lots of people who are casual with hurt. I'm pleading with you. I don't want you to get where Esau and the guy in Matthew 18 got. I don't want you to get where so many people get, where everyone can go. And you get to a point and you're only suspicious. And you are unable to do 1 Corinthians 13 love. Unable to hope the best. Unable to believe the best. You are bitter. So, when you are offended, when you are hurt, you are in a state of emergency. And you better get with it. You may lose it all. If you have been forgiven by God for all we've done to Him by the blood of His Son, who do you need to forgive? And How do you need to show that in a real way? You trust the Lord with whether they are sincere in their confession and whether they're going to follow through with their repentance. You trust the Lord that He can actually enable them to do that. He enabled you to do it. And and, and yes, there are some 
egregious, extreme sins that even send people to prison so that their relationships, they can't be reconciled fully. It it, it may take time to prove trust for a while, but as far as it's up to me, I'm not the one standing, I'm not drawing the line. And I'm going to show from my heart forgiveness. And I'm willing to walk with you through this, even though it may take some time to be restored. This is the longest section of this sermon because the offended person is the one who, more than the offender, is called to imitate God. And the one forgiving is the one paying. I'm going to absorb the cost. I'm not going to make you absorb the cost. I will do it. And if we don't, well, the world will have no witness that God does. I could have titled this sermon The Secret to Christian Relationships. The more tightly woven your life is with others, which is what God calls you to, the more opportunities you'll have to practice this. Pinpoint, picture, prove, pledge, plead, pardon. The more you do it, the more habitual and second nature it'll become. God is in the business. This is part of His gift as a church. He intentionally puts good confessors with bad confessors. Good forgivers with bad forgivers. Because He's after something in us. He wants that transaction to give us a greater trust in and appreciation for all that Jesus is and to call us to Himself. So I I would imagine this is as difficult for you to hear as it is for me to hear and live out. But we have hope in the Gospel. And there is grace that has been purchased by the blood of Jesus to help us to grow in both confession and forgiving others who sinned against us. Father in Heaven, we pray that You would take this Word and You would make it bear much fruit. Oh God, we're praying that if there are habits of peace-breaking and peace-faking, if there are just habits of to hell with you, I'm leaving. I don't need you. Oh God, would you soften us by the gospel of your son? None of us is sufficient for these things. All of us struggle with these things. We are not the Christ. But we have the Christ. So we have hope that you will work in making us ambitious to grow in confessing sin and forgiving it to the praise of your glory and for a witness to a people and to a world that doesn't understand these things. Oh God, use it to reconcile and to make a name for your son. We pray this in his name. Amen.